Thank you, worship team. Um, if you want to join me today, you can already tell from your handout um, in your bulletin that we are beginning a brand new study today. So if you want to join me uh, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, um, I am not by any means wanting to undermine all that I'm about to say, okay? Uh, but just being totally transparent and honest with you, I told you last week that the message on December 30th was such an urgent message, uh, and I still would encourage you, if you haven't heard that one, go back and listen to that. Last week we concluded a series on prayer, seeing that prayer needs to be specific, and we looked at a very specific prayer of Paul and for the Philippian church, that their love would grow. And so today we're kicking off a new book of the Bible, and I'm going to tell you this will be a very different sermon uh, than I typically preach. Two weeks ago I said I probably had more Bible verses in that message, maybe than any other time I'd ever tried to pack that many verses into one message. Today is going to be fewer verses and fewer time, actually less time spent dealing with the text than normal, and that is because this is an introductory message. Uh, I, I pray that the Lord would give me the right balance in this. Um, I don't want to just skip and jump right into verse number one. I do feel like we need to hit some things this morning. So first question I want to ask ourselves, um, why a gospel? Why are we going into a gospel? Uh, I asked, when, even when we were over there in the other building on Wednesday night, I started asking the Wednesday night crew and in staff meeting, let's really pray. What's the Lord's guidance and leadership for where we'd have us go? Probably around January, and here we are. A new book of the Bible. And I've asked many of you, some of you have said, hey, how can I pray? Pray for God's guidance. Uh, which book of the Bible? And I really feel uh, that the Lord would have us in a gospel. Why? I believe what we said last week. That knowledge of God fuels love for God. So our goal is more love for God. How are we going to do that? How are we going to love each other and take these challenges that we've heard 20, 30 minutes ago? The reason that will happen is I know more about God. That's going to fuel my love for God and fuel for other people. So I just feel like we need to study God. 2019, study this person. So I want to propose to you. What better way to learn of God than to study Jesus? There is no better way. We're just going to study Christ. Now, why Matthew, I will tell you, um, that was not my original plan. Had it been my plan, we would do Mark. Here's why. Mark's shorter. <laughs> and I, we were in Romans a long time. And so by going into Matthew, this is a commitment. And I will say, right here at the outset, I don't have a point in mind. I don't have a, a break in mind. But if along the way we hit a good breaking point and God says, hey, take a little time, go hit Philemon for a month. Hey, we'll do it. And then we'll come back to this. So this is definitely a commitment. But it, ultimately, as I looked at Mark, it is shorter. Luke was in play. John is different. And we'd love to do that in, in my lifetime. But the reason I felt like the Lord would have us, this is not to slight Mark, but Matthew has most everything that Mark has in it and then some. And what Matthew has are these words of Christ. Lots of his speeches and discourses, several of them, some say five, some say six, definitely at least, at least five. Now I also know, I'm, I'm introducing things today. I realize some of you may know a little bit about Matthew and you 
know how it begins. You already have it in front of you, and what you're looking at is a big, long genealogy. 17 verses of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And then you're thinking, and that's followed up by the Christmas story. Jeff, this would have been great to do back in maybe December. I don't know why the Lord didn't clarify this in December, but hey, the birth of Christ is always relevant. It's, we get so conditioned Christmas time, Christmas time. And then that is followed in chapter 2 by the wise men. And then Mary and Joseph and Jesus are going to go down into Egypt. And they'll come back out of Egypt and they'll settle into Nazareth. And off of the book goes. So do not let a genealogy and a Christmas story upcoming discourage you. Like, oh man, I think church is going to be a drag the next few weeks. Don't look at it that way. Let me whet your appetite with some things that are coming. Catch this. Soon we'll be looking at the ministry of John the Baptist and that'll tie us in to the baptism of Jesus. We'll go from there to the wilderness, to the temptation of Jesus and God. I don't know yet, but God's going to teach us some things. I don't know what all those will be. I'm on the journey. I've never talked through Matthew. Read it. Done it devotional. Never talked through it. So we'll be going into the wilderness with Christ. We'll come out of the wilderness and we'll be going into the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. Listen to its 20 parts. The Beatitudes. Jesus says we're to be salt and light. Christ says he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. Jesus is going to teach us his teaching on anger. His teaching on lust. His teaching on divorce. His teaching on taking oaths and swearing. What he has to say about retaliation. Loving your enemies. Giving to the needy. What many call the Lord's Prayer. We would call it the Lord's Model Prayer. What Jesus has to say about fasting. Laying up treasures in heaven. He's going to tell us, do not be anxious. I read this list last night. I was all bound up, man. I got a, a new member's class. I've got 10 pages of material I need to study there. I've got this number of pages here. I've got another thing. Uh, ended up like 16 pages of material. I usually have four. And I'm all bound up. And I was like, wait a minute. Uh, Sermon on the Mount. Be not anxious. And that kind of made me chill. Just a little like, all right. Hang on. He's going to tell us not to judge others. He's going to say, ask and it will be given to you. What we call the golden rule. Treat people how you want to be treated. He's going to talk about how a tree is known. How do you know what that tree is? By its fruit. That's how you know people. By their fruit of their life. And then that Sermon on the Mount winds down with Jesus talking about there's going to be some people who are absolutely shocked they don't go to heaven because Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Never knew you. And then he's going to say, you better build your house on the rock, which we just sang about. After that, there will be several miracles that will follow. Jesus will heal, heal lepers. He will heal a centurion's servant. He will calm a storm, cast out demons. He'll a paralyzed man, a woman with internal bleeding, will reach out and just touch his garment. She'll be healed. He'll raise a ruler's dead daughter back to life. He'll heal blind people and he'll heal the mute. After that, he's going to tell us when it comes to souls, the harvest is plenteous. The problem is the laborers, the soul winners are few. You're like, boy, that is a jam-packed book. Now that's chapters 3 through 10. It's not the book. So today... It's mostly introductory, and I want to hit four ideas. You'll not see them broken down, one, two, three, four, 
in your handout, but you'll see three of these ideas in particular. Let's just start here again. Most of this is introductory, and I know a lot of folks would say, why are you doing that? Just jump into the text. First of all, who's the author of this book? The author of this book, well, here's the difficulty. If you were to read Matthew, you will not find Matthew saying that he's the author of the book. Nowhere in the text does it tell us who the author is. So, Jeff, if the text doesn't tell us who the author is, how do we know who the author is? All right? In the 1800s and 1900s, and here now in the 21st century, there's lots of debate, lots of argument back and forth about it. But listen, this is what I'm about to say is important. The early church, the people who lived then, unanimously, 100%, attributed the writing of this book, though he's not named, to Matthew, the apostle of Jesus. 100%. They never attributed it to anyone else. People today like to surmise and make theories and guesses. You know what I'm thinking? They were there. We're not. We're going to say it. Matthew is the author. But here's the problem. This was kind of revelatory to me. I didn't realize this. We don't know a whole lot about Matthew, mainly because nowhere in the New Testament do you have any of his words. Yeah, John talks. Yeah, Philip speaking. We know Peter talks a lot. Andrew has some things to say. Judas, unfortunately, has some things to say that are recorded. Matthew, nowhere in the New Testament does, does any of his words get recorded. And so, frankly, guys, we don't know a lot about the author of this book other than to say this, and we'll go into it more when we get to the point where Jesus is going to call Levi. He's going to call Matthew. Here's what we know. He's Jewish, and he's a tax gatherer, a tax collector. He works for the hated Roman Empire, which that tells me, I just step back, and I think about this man, I'm getting ready to read his book, and I want the Lord to use it to teach me about God by studying the life of Christ, who is God. And I have this thought. This man, Matthew, pretty much for his adult life, made choices that he knew would cause him to be hated and despised by the average Jew of his day. Why? You're taking our tax money. And you're not just doing the job. You guys have a reputation. You always take extra for yourself. And they let you get by with it. And we hate you guys. Yeah, I know that group. They were so ostracized, they pretty much kept to themselves. And then, as if he wasn't hated enough, this man becomes a follower of Jesus who the average Jew absolutely despises and hates. And they were glad he was crucified because they believed he was a heretic. You take our money, you follow this heretic, his whole life despised. Second thing I want us to touch on is the date. We'll be very brief here. It's not possible to nail down the time when the book of Matthew was written. Again, lots of theories, lots of debate. I've read some of them, and some of them make pretty good sense, and that and the other. Uh, lots of arguments and lots of theories. I'm not going to do that with you guys this morning. So I'm going to offer to you my opinion. This is my opinion. This is not guaranteed. This is what I want to offer. The book of Matthew was probably written in the 60s. You're like, oh yeah, back with the hippies. No, not the 1960s, okay? Uh, the 60s. The original 60s. Probably about the same time, very near, watch this, the same time as two other of the Gospels. Matthew was probably written around the same time as Luke. And for a while, most people thought Matthew was written first. But now it looks like, and it's pretty strong evidence, Matthew was not written first. Matthew was probably written in the 60s, around the same time as Luke, but after Mark. So it appears Mark was written first. Not going on all the details there. 
but knowing that Mark, Matthew, and Luke would no doubt have been well aware of what Mark had written, and then they will expand. So here's a quick thought. In AD 70, we know this. In AD 70, we know that day, the Romans got sick and tired of what the Jews were doing, kept stirring up trouble. The Romans under Titus go in and just destroy the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Watch. Jesus in Matthew 24 predicts the destruction of the temple. Matthew is going to be, you're going to see this in the coming weeks. Matthew is really strong on this idea of fulfillment. Fulfillment. The life of Christ is fulfilling things. So I contend if the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed in AD 70, and Matthew wants to prove that Jesus and his words are fulfillment of things, and he says that Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24, why would he not have said, and that's exactly what happened? So that tells me this book is written before AD 70. Third thought, purpose. What is the purpose? Matthew's different. Hang with me. You say, Jeff, you're giving background. I'm not really into background. I just want to get into the text. Hang on. When you read a book of Paul, often he will say why he wrote the book. Hey, Timothy, First Timothy, I'm writing this book to you. I'm leaving you in Ephesus. I want you to know, as a pastor, elder, bishop, how to set things in order in the churches there. Hope to come to you soon, but you need to know how to set. So I'm writing this letter. He writes to the Romans to say, I've really been wanting to come. I'm planning to come. When I come, I'm going to train you guys, and you guys are going to springboard me on to Spain. That's the plan. And oh, by the way, here's some doctrine you need to make sure that you understand. He writes to the Colossians to encourage them and to instruct them on the sufficiency of Christ. He writes to the Galatians, he tells them, because he's rebuking them. He tells them exactly, you guys are falling prey to false doctrine. Stop it. Cut it out. John. John's gospel, he tells us, I want you, I'm writing my gospel to, so that you will put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Because there's salvation in the name of Jesus. John tells, John writes the book of 1 John, that's his gospel. He writes 1 John, for those who are already believing in Christ that you will know that you have eternal life. We can know we have eternal life? Absolutely, John says, that's why I'm writing 1 John. Matthew, where do you state your purpose? He doesn't. That's why we have to read the book of Matthew to glean from it. What does he emphasize? Watch this. As a comparison with other, the, the other gospel writers. So we have these four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What does Matthew seem to emphasize in comparison with the others? So that makes me ask this next question. Why in the world do we have four gospels? Why do you have four gospels? Isn't that a bit of an overkill? I mean, Mark covers, a lot, covers all these things, all these actions of Christ... And then Matthew and Luke seem to cover a lot of those same things. And yes, they give a little extra, but why do we have to have four Gospels? I love sports. I think I started really watching sports maybe in 1980 or 1981. So for 37, 38, 39 years of my life, I've been watching sports. Haven't done it lately, but I know back in 1980, if you watched a basketball game like I did yesterday, it didn't go very well for the Tar Heels, by the way. But anyway, uh, I, I suffered through that one. Probably wished I hadn't watched that game. But back in the 1980s, you'd be to do well to have two cameras. Pretty much got the same view. There they go, and there they go, and there they go. Do you all know how many cameras they have at ball games these days? They've got camera on top of the backboard. They have one done, and I'm like, hey, you guys with the baggy shorts, you might want to be careful. 
They got a camera down there. They got cameras down the sideline, camera down the baseline. They can see who the ball went off of. There was another game. It was real close. Who'd the ball go off? Man, they've got these games. The football games today, the football game last night, they've got this thing. Boy, that cameraman's really moving fast. No, it's on a big cable. So this guy looks like he's running for 90 yards on the kickoff return. This cameraman's just as fast as him. No, they have cameras all over the place. They got them in the pylons now. Cameras everywhere. Why in the world do you do that? So we can have more angles, get a fuller view. This is going to help us have a better understanding. Go to the replay. Look at, wow, it's definitely off of that person. And they settle disputes. Why four Gospels? It's as though God is saying, I'm giving you four perspectives, all writing about the exact same life with a little bit of a different emphasis among each one. Your next note, would you take this? The first three books of the New Testament, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic. I know I'm getting ready to hit some things that many of you know, but please be patient here. There's some folks sitting here like, I didn't know that. Okay, You'll not find these words in the Bible, but these are called the synoptic Gospel. Your body has symmetry. Your left is like your right side. It's similar, to see in a similar way. We know that optic has to do with the eye. And so the experts have studied Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they've deemed them to be the synoptic gospels, which means they see together. So they're looking at the life of Christ, and these three seem to see very similar things when it comes to the life of Christ. They see his life together. Watch this. Over here's John. John's very different, very unique. John apparently writes in the 80s or 90s, some 20. 30 years later, John, why are you writing? And it's as though John's writing, I'm going to cover some things they didn't cover. So here's what appears to have happened. Mark's going to write first, covers a lot of the action, and Luke is going to see, well, I see what you've done, and he's going to expound on it one way. Mark, Matthew says, I see what you've done there, and he's going to expound on it another way. John comes along and writes things the others didn't cover. I've honestly, if I could have these four guys in a room, I would ask, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, how in the world do you not write about water into wine? It's Jesus' first miracle. Why didn't you put that? How come John had to do that? How come you guys didn't cover Nicodemus? You must be born again. Jesus saying, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believeth in him. How come you guys didn't write that? This woman at the well, John had to do that. Lazarus. Four days dead. How do you guys leave that out of the book? You know what John says? Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you get on to those guys, you need to understand. If we wrote everything, the world couldn't contain the books. The world couldn't contain the books of all the things that Jesus did. And so we step back and ask ourselves this question. Why write another gospel? If, Matthew, if Mark's already there, Matthew, why are you writing? Luke, why are you writing? So let's springboard from this next note. I've written myself a little side thing, important note. So this idea, it's not going to sound that fancy, but this is important as we springboard. What's the purpose of this book? If you'll write the following. Matthew, particular to him, demonstrates from the actions and teachings of Jesus. By that we mean his actions, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his words. What is he illustrating? Matthew is demonstrating from the actions and teaching of Jesus that it is possible, and I really should have made that word even stronger than it is possible. It is right. Hear me. Here's Matthew's goal. It is right to believe wholeheartedly in the God of the Jews and his promises that he made in the Old Testament. It is so right to believe those things, and yet... At the same time, possess full belief in Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God and the Savior, Messiah, King. In other words, 
Do you really think that's possible? You've got to be either Old Testament or New Testament. Don't know about the order it was written, but Matthew is the, in the perfect spot where God has it because it's the best transition from the Old Testament to the New Covenant. What he's showing again. Yes, we believe in the God of the Old Testament. Yes, we believe in all the promises he made to the Jews. And that does not contradict, go against. It actually complements everything. And the New Testament complements it. This is exactly what needs to happen. Yes, it is possible to believe in all of those promises in the God of the Old Testament and that Jesus is His Son in the New Testament. And so the next thing that you see there by way of introduction, we're almost done, is what many have observed. This is certainly not unique or original to me and we wouldn't even know who to see it, give it to. But if you guys, listen, if you were to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the book of Matthew first week of the month every, every, all year. I'm going to read the book of Mark first, for the second week of the month all year long. I'm going to read Luke and then John. That's, that'll be my four weeks, how I feel my months. And by the end of the year, I will have read each of those things 12 times. You would 100% agree with what you're about to write. So here's what people have observed. We're talking about purpose. What's the purpose? Write it down. It appears Matthew was written primarily to Jews. Not only to Jews. Jeff, why are we studying this if it's written primarily to Jews? Listen, he's going to tie the Old and New Testament together. We really would be missing a lot if we jumped from the Old Testament into Mark. Or if we jumped from the Old Testament to Acts or to Romans. We'd really be in a mess. So what do we have? Matthew's writing primarily to Jews. Why? This is his people. He's wanting to reveal that Jesus is your promised Messiah. He is the King. And he's going to tie... Most everything that he writes, strong ties back to the Old Testament. Because, and by the way, we're not going to get into those last two words there, the Messiah King. We're not going to get there this morning. We'll start going into that next week on this idea of Jesus fulfilling the promise of the Messiah King. Because it's a king, here's what Matthew emphasizes. His words are important. Mark doesn't emphasize Jesus' words. Mark is heavy on this idea of fulfillment. Fulfillment, Jesus' life, his words, his actions, his death. His resurrection, our fulfillments of Old Testament. He's constantly going to tie us back. What about Mark? Very quickly, Mark appears to have been written primarily to Romans. Why? To reveal Jesus is the perfect servant of God. Mark is all about action. Immediately, straightway, quickly. Jesus is doing this. Now he's over here doing that. Mark is about action. Jesus is the perfect servant of God. What about Luke? Luke appears to be written primarily to the Greeks. Luke's the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. So what is he doing? He's of that realm. And so he's writing kind of his people. Why? He's trying to portray that Jesus is the perfect, not servant, the perfect son of man. Luke is constantly emphasizing the humanness of Jesus the Christ. And being a Gentile, here's what you'll find in the book of Luke. I know we're not studying it, but Gentiles, we are always put in a good light in the book of Luke. The centurions are coming to Christ and the Gentiles are seeking Christ and submitting to him. Whereas often the Jews are not. So Luke has that bent. You say, what about 25, 30 years later? Why does John write? It appears that John wrote to all people. I'm not writing to the Jews. I'm not writing to the Romans. I'm not writing to the Greeks. He says, I'm writing to all people to prove Jesus is not only the perfect son of man, not only the perfect servant, not only the Messiah king and fulfillment of the prophecies for the Jews. Here's what John is after. He says this very plainly. He says, I want you to understand that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God, the one and only son of God by nature. 
And he goes out, and the key word in John is proofs. He proves using seven or eight things as proof. All right. Author, Matthew. Date, probably in the 60s. Purposes, Matthew's like, I'm trying to show the Jews, the Jews that you can correlate and, and believe both in the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament as well as Jesus and his placement and him as God in the economy and the kingdom of God in the Old and the New Testament. Yes, it is possible. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old and he's very valuable in that regard. So one last thing by way of introduction is this, our approach. I always say this when we start a new book. This will be the third time and that's why this is not in your handout. It's not in your handout. I want to urge you. This would be your day-to-day devotions, but this is certainly us as we're beginning the study, literally in just a moment, a study of a new book of the Bible. I want to offer you four principles I try to remind myself over and over. Here they are. Put them in your head. Checklist yourself. Number one, always study the Word of God prayerfully. Prayerfully. Get ready to go to church. Get ready to have your devotions. Start with prayer. Get ready to have Sunday school. Start with prayer. What are we supposed to pray for? Watch. God, would you direct us in our studies? Lord, would you protect us? You know we tend to move toward error. So, Lord, would you protect us from error as we study this book? God, would you direct us? Jeff sure has no clue where this study of Matthew's going. God, would you move grace view through the book of Matthew, showing us the things you want for us? What a great prayer. And then ultimately, here's what we're praying for. God, would you enlighten us to the truths you're trying to impress upon us? Second principle. Second principle. Get it. Always approach God's word and God's will. I want to know the will of God. Always approach the Word of God and the will of God, check yourself, with a heart determined to obey. God, would you just unfold and put a light on your Word today as I read it in my devotional time? Do this. God, whatever you show me, I'm going to put it into into my life. I'm going to submit. I'm going to be obedient. That's when God's Word will start coming in life. You're like, I don't ever get anything out of reading the Bible. Do this, God, if you'll show me some things, I'm going to obey what you show me. God, direct and protect and illuminate, but God, what you show me, listen, that's the proper order. I'll submit, and then, Lord, you show me. Don't do this. God, you show me what your will is, and I'll decide if I'm going to do it. God's going to keep that book closed to you. Number three, principle number three, you need to settle this now. I'm going to do it. I am full well aware that by the end of me teaching and preaching through this book, if the Lord allows me to make it to the end, I will have some different views on some things that I stand here now having. So here's the principle. God and His Word are always right, even when they contradict our logic. A lot of these commentaries try to explain away the supernatural. That's not logical. But if the Word of God says it, we believe it. God and His Word are always right. They may contradict our logic. You say, I don't like that. God and His Word are right. You say, I have these other beliefs. I already have a system of theology that's mine. I like my system of theology. But if the Bible contradicts your system of theology, your preconceived notions, the Word of God wins. So here's those first one again. Prayerfully surrendered. God, I'm going to do what you show me. I dare you guys to do this even right now. God, what we're getting ready to read, I ask you to show me. I'm going to surrender to what you show me. And Lord, you're right, even when it doesn't seem like. But if your word, we're going to let your word say what it says. And then the fourth principle is very simple. Knowing God is always the main goal. 
There's other things that happen when we study a, a book of the Bible, but knowing God is always the main role. And so there's our introduction. Now, look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Because here's my dilemma. I want, I want to do more than just stand up and give some facts. And in Jesus' name, let's pray. And everybody goes home. Well, that was different. We didn't even read a single verse. Jeff's never done that. But I also know if I were to tackle this section of 17 verses, there's too much there. You're going, there's too much there. It looks like a whole lot of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. I don't see a whole lot there. We're not going to do an exhaustive study of the Old Testament, that's for sure. But there's too much there to cover today, so we'll go into it next week. But I was like, honestly, here's what happened the other day, mainly Thursday. Lord, I'm not even going into all the commentaries and the books and see what they have to say about these 17 verses. Here's what I did. Lord, as I read through this a few times, would you give me just a couple of thoughts to share with the folks so we at least get to whet our appetite and it's not just introductory material? I would remind you of this before we read the text. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So right now, you say, I don't really care for the introductory stuff. I'm not really a background kind of person. Okay? I am. I'm sorry. Forgive me. That's the expositional teacher, preacher in me that does that. But if you would, ask the Lord... Lord, this doesn't seem too exciting. Doesn't seem that applicable. Seems like just some information. I'm sure it's important for some reason. Don't approach it that way. Do this. Before we read it, go and read it like within a minute. Just say, God, help me to reverence your word. And would you show me some things that I need to know this morning? Just simple things. Now we'll approach the scripture. This is the word of God. It is inspired. God breathed. And profitable. So by faith you say this book, these 17 verses, all scripture is inspired, breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable. So Lord, I know it's profitable. Make it profitable to me as we read. Look at verse number 1. We're going to read one time through this morning. Be back here next week. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So David's the son of Abraham, but Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Doesn't mean directly, as you'll see. Means he's the descendant. And here's how. Abraham was. But then Abraham was the father. Abraham was not a father. Abraham got to be a father. So there's a time he's not, now he's a father. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac got to be a father. Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, the other 11. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, twins, by Tamar. There's a story in verse 3. Raise your hand if any of you are familiar with verse 3. You don't know that story? Man, what, I, we may, I don't know if we'll touch that or not. We might. We'll see. And so here's Judah, the son of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes. Hey, this is great. Judah, he's the father of Perez and Zerah. 
by Tamar. That's the woman. But we're going to center on Perez, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Hey, I remember her. Jericho. Salmon, the father of Boaz. How? By Rahab. Rahab. And, as we know, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. A Gentile. This is Jesus' line here? It's Gentile, yes. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. And you'll remember David's the youngest. He's got all these older brothers. To Jesse's surprise, David the king. The middle of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon. Oh, that sounds cool. I've heard of both of those. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That doesn't sound right. Wait, David's the father, right? Solomon, the baby, yeah. By the wife, yeah, wife of Uriah. But we got to keep going. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Oh, yeah, I remember him. So you got Saul. He blows it. God says, you don't get the kingdom. Got a new man over here. He's a man after my own heart. David has Solomon. Solomon has Rehoboam. Rehoboam comes out and says, you think my dad was a strong leader. I am going to be even stronger. And he was threatening to be oppressive. And all of a sudden, the northern ten, ten tribes said, "Now nah, we're taking our ball and going home. And the nation of Israel was born, leaving behind what will then be called Judah. So Judah and Benjamin. So you got ten tribes, Judah and Benjamin, down here with the Levites. So again, verse 7, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, he blew it. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So the northern ten tribes, they split off. They end up being conquered by the Assyrians, the Ninevites, but not the southern tribes. But eventually the southern tribes kept going into idolatry. And finally God says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And the Babylonians conquer even the southern tribes, which we're mainly following. So here's Jeconiah, and off he goes in. His people go into deportation, exile. So verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of, of, of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph. Like, hey, now I'm familiar with this Christmas coming. Jacob the father of Joseph, the father of, no, it doesn't say the father of. Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Of whom? Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Matthew's already getting to his point. Matthew's already getting to his purpose. And so as he concludes this genealogy, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to, to Babylon to the Christ, 
14 generations. We're not going into all of that this morning. Can I share two thoughts? So Thursday I'm reading, and I just read through this once, twice. Oh, there's an idea. Get to that next week. Well, there's something else. We'll get to that next week. And then there's these two thoughts I want to give you this morning. Number one, when I read this list, I can't escape this thought. Generations of God's grace. I want you all to think with me today. What did we just read? Generations of God's grace. Here's the thought you should be having on your mind. Mercy. 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 That one, mercy. And that one, mercy. And that one, mercy. Uh, I don't know about that one. Mercy, 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 mercy all through. Generations of God's grace. That's what I see when I just read these 17 verses. I'm reading Thursday. It's like crystal clear. These are just generations One after another. Wow, this is grace. Jeff, what are you talking about? Listen. This list I just read, I'm going to tell you what it contains. you got to taste this. This list of names contains adulterers. Several. You know what I'm saying? Vows, I will, to you, public. Woohoo! Birdseed. Off they go. They consummate the marriage. This list has people stepping outside of those promises and vows. Not married. Adulterers. That's this list. What else? Murderers. He says, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Murderers. Murderers. You don't have to leave the first verse till you find adultery and murder. Arrogance. The violent. This list we just read, these names are the violent. Guys, I'm not talking about one. Oh, yeah, he had that guy killed. Oh, that one killed someone. I'm not talking about, oh, okay, so those had some folks knocked off. I'm not talking about hundreds of people. I'm not talking about thousands. Hear me. I'm talking about tens of thousands of people who died because of the names on this list. What do we have? Adulterers, murderers, arrogance, the violent liars. Don't leave the first verse. Liars. Deceivers. Deceivers. Think we can trick them. Cheaters. Big names. Swindlers. Drunkards. Generations of grace. Who's this list? Listen. Incest. Rape. Two prostitutes. One with an incident. Another, that's her life. That's how she makes her money. Prostitutes. Bad parenting all through this list. Lots of favoritism. Everybody in the family knows. He likes him. She likes them. Terrible parenting. Hear me. Polygamists. Polygamists. Multiple wives. Adultery is not a problem for me. I see that. (laughs) You just marry another one. Several polygamists. Not like one over here on the side, a secret. Y'all know one of these names has hundreds of wives. 
Hundreds of wives. Grace. Tyrants. Defilers of the temple. Defilers of the priesthood. Idolaters. But not just an idolater. Leading the nation into idolatry. And you thought your family reunion was rough. (laughs) Did you hear that list? Did you hear that list? Here's my point. I didn't read that list. I didn't pop a book open. Oh, oh, what? You're right. Oh, wow. I didn't read the list. I didn't make the list up. I didn't fabricate the list. So, Jeff, why are you emphasizing? Hear what I'm about to say. I'm not an Old Testament expert. I didn't read the Old Testament last year. I've read it many times. You know you get foggy and rusty. I'm reading it this year. Off my foggy, rusty memory, one time, this point came from one reading. It occurred to me, that guy's an adulterer and a murderer. He's a liar. He's a cheating, swindling deceiver. This one, I'm not an expert. An expert on the Old Testament said, dude, I need to fill you a list. You just scratched the surface, Jeff. Again, what's the point? This is the genealogy of Jesus. Do you see the kind of people Jesus is willing to associate himself with? That's my group. That's my family. Who's your family? Oh yeah, my family. This is my descendants. Adulterers, murderers, arrogant, violent, liars, deceivers, cheaters, swindlers, drunkards, incest, rape, prostitution, horrible parenting, polygamous, tyrants, defilers of the temple, defilers of the priesthood, Leaders into idolatry. Jeff, are all these people going to be in heaven? Nope, they're not. But many of them will be in heaven by grace. Grace. Y'all do remember what I mean when I say grace. You got to get it. You'll never appreciate grace. Packer, help me. We will never understand grace until we understand this thought. Grace is when God doesn't have to do it. Don't have to do it. That list deserve God's favors? Does that list deserve heaven? No. Grace is when God says, I don't have to do it. You don't deserve it. And He can do it for that one. He doesn't have to do it for anybody. But it's grace when He chooses to do it. Grace is when God says, I'm going to give it to them. Now they have to receive it. Before I leave this point, here's the point for us. This is generations of grace. So Jeff, what about us sitting here this morning? Not to be mean. Thought hit me Thursday. Sometimes we think too highly of ourselves in the 21st century American church. If we're not careful, we will fool ourselves into thinking we pretty well have it together. If you've been in a Bible church, I don't mean Bible church as a denomination. I mean in a church that teaches and preaches the Bible. If you've been in that kind of church for a while, listen. You can kind of learn which clothes to wear. Which hairstyles are acceptable? Which words to omit? We don't use those words. And you can learn how to articulate the major doctrines. 
Those clothes, eh, those hairstyles, wouldn't do more than that. that. That's fine. Don't use those words. Use these words. These are approved words. They say the same thing, but it's kind of just a little. Anyway. <clears throat> and we can talk it. If you just hang around a while, you can start spouting back the doctrine. Now listen to me. Those are good, good things. Jeff, do you believe? Do you honestly in your heart believe there's some clothes we ought not wear? I believe there's some clothes Christians ought not wear. I do. Which ones? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not the Holy Ghost. I don't have a list in the Bible. I do believe there's a way that hair should be worn. Again, I'm not going to tell you. You need to walk with the Holy Spirit. He'll lead you on if you have that right or not. I do believe there are words to omit. And we should be able to articulate the doctrines. Those are one, hear me. Those are wonderful things. And you should expect, expect to grow in godliness. December 30th's message. You should expect to grow in godliness. But here's my point. In all of your growing in godliness... Don't ever, hear me, don't ever forget where you were when God found you. Don't ever forget where you were headed when God found you. Yes, you were here, but you were headed down there had He left you alone. You remember where He found you? Don't ever forget your nature when left alone by God. You say, well, what is my nature when left alone by God? It's this list I just read. That is you when God withdraws from you. That's not your list because God invaded your world. He's changing your life. Leaving you to yourself. This is you. So here's the point. Christian, hear me. Don't ever put in your mind your sin in small font. Lowercase. Let's put some quotes. Ten font. Lowercase. There's your sin. But in your mind, you see and think of the sins of those who are still away from God. All caps. Bold. 28 font. Exclamation. Their sin. That sin is horrible. Whoa. This list is you. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you were headed. Don't forget where you would be if God did not invade your world. You better remember by looking at this list. There but for the grace of God goes you. Don't forget this. If you want to write it down. What do we learn in verses 1 through 17? God loves sinners. Jesus came to seek and to save lost sinners do you recognize your sin? Are you ready to confess your sin and put your trust in Christ? Then I'm ready to save you. But what if I've done some really bad things? You done worse than this list? Quickly. Second thought. I know we're hitting dynamic of passage. We're not going verse by verse. It's dynamic. Number two and lastly. <clears throat> Heritage does not define us. That's what I saw. Heritage does not define us. Jeff, what do you mean? Hang with me. Everybody dial in. Dial in. I looked at this list and here's what I saw. 
God. There's a tremendous lack of consistency. God is this. Jeff, what do you mean? Watch. There's a string of wicked wicked fathers. And then there'll be a son who has a heart for God. It's the strangest thing. Wicked, 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 loves God. And in the flip of that, there'll be some people who imperfectly but try and they have a relationship with God and His grace and they try to pass down their faith and pass down their faith and this one and that one live for the Lord and then out of the blue, random, extremely wicked life. Wicked, 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 godly. Wow, godly, godly. Wit, not like really Manasseh, you. So the conclusion I came to Thursday was this. Write it down. Though, hear it, hear it as personal. Though someone may have a godly heritage, that in no way ensures they will follow God. Somebody has godly heritage. Woo, we're the Smiths. We're the Bartlett's. That in no way ensures they will follow God. Hear me. Your heritage does not define you. There's you. Flip the coin. Here's a person who has no heritage of true faith to be found anywhere in their family to their knowledge. They can begin the heritage of faith for their descendants. It's the craziest thing. No followers of God anywhere in the family. Just all hard the list. That's my family. Some of you are sitting here like, that's my family. And then there's you. There's you by grace. A couple of strong statements. Neither salvation from God nor love for God. See that? Downward, upward. Neither salvation from Grace from God nor love for God are automatic in a family. Neither one. If you want to write your last note here, it's this. Each person must have their own relationship with God because, as Wearsby says, God has no grandchildren. Hear me this morning. God doesn't have grandchildren. He has children. One son by nature, Jesus the Christ. Many Children, no grandchildren. Let me get personal for just a moment. Our heritage does not define us. Will you give me just a few moments? You with me? My grandfather on my dad's side's name was Ernest. He was a pastor. He had six sons, one of whom is my dad. So I have five uncles on that side. My mom had a brother. Listen, I have six uncles. Had six uncles. So my grandfather's a pastor. Out of my six uncles, one was a pastor. Decades. Two others taught Sunday school for decades and led music in their church for decades. Dewey and Harold. Pastor Lewis, my pastor growing up. Three out of my six uncles. I have at least three cousins called to preach. Another of my female cousins married a preacher. My brother, my sister, very active in church. 
My brother's been on over 20 mission trips. He helps with the youth in their church. He'll have a young men's Bible study at his house tomorrow night. He always has it on Monday night. Very active. Deanna's grandfather, on her mother's side, a deacon in a church. Deanna's dad, decades of a fireball pastor. Fireball. You think she's wound up. Her brother, an assistant pastor in Pennsylvania. Her sister married to our brother-in-law, who's a pastor in Battle Creek, Michigan. Did you catch it? My grandfather, three uncles, three cousins, another cousin by marriage. On her side, deacon, pastor, pastor, pastor. And then we have two kids. Both of our kids have made a profession of faith. Both, both serve regularly here at Graceview. But let's just be honest, they live under our roof. We don't have to flick lights and throw water and yell and scream on Sunday mornings. It's understood they're going to come to church. I think they would. It's understood. You live under our roof. It's going to happen. Here's what I know. The day will come when they will move out and they'll have to determine, am I going to follow Christ? Yep, we've got Ernest, we've got Lewis, Harold, Dewey. Oh yeah. Grandmother, my mom, treasurer, Russell, mission trips all the time, Teresa and the choir and the things that she does. Oh, there's the Anna side. Pastor, pastor, pastor. Are they going to follow Christ? We're going to see. We're going to see. It's personal. Personal. Your heritage does not define you. I know that on Wednesday nights, we've got several 12th graders in our youth. They're seniors in high school. Some of them are sitting here right now. Here's my question. In eight months, will you be following God when you're out on your own? Or are you going to blend in with the culture? Well, my family, the Bartlett's, those from Asheville, oh yeah, they're Christians. No, not all are Christians. They love God. No, they don't all love God. Well, we, we come from a godly family and, and my parents, they're, they're, they're Christians. Are you? My, my mom and dad, they serve the Lord. Wonderful. Will you? Will you? Twelfth graders, will you? We're going to find out very soon. Did you go? Because mom and dad go? Raise your hand because it's the thing to do in church. So I close with these thoughts. One's ancestry has no ultimate determination, no binding determination on where you will spend eternity, heaven or hell. Those of us who have parents who are saved and walked with God to varying levels, hear me, you have a great advantage. If that you say, I have a parent or I have both parents, you should thank God right now. Before I finish this sentence that I just finished, you should have, God, yeah, thank you. What an advantage, but I want you to hear me. If you refuse to trust Jesus for yourself, your supposed advantage will end up ultimately adding to your torments as you burn in hell for eternity. The person beside you that did not have loved ones that had a relationship with God and there you sat, you will know for eternity. I saw it every day. She was imperfect and he was sure imperfect, but they, they, they had it before me. They were exemplifying grace 
But I never took it for myself. Jeff, what do you see in these 17 verses? I see generations of grace, and I see that our heritage does not define us. I know this. Hear me. At the end of the day, we owe it all to the personal grace of God coming to us. Ultimately, that's it. The grace of God must come to us. But when it does, we have to respond individually. His personal grace, it's not a family grace. Personal grace, and then you must respond individually. So my question is, has that come to you? And if you're sitting there saying, oh yes, when? When? 1979. When? Where? Bigger question. Where's Jesus in your testimony? Wonderful that you had this event and these surroundings and these feelings. Where's Jesus in your testimony? You have to have a relationship with God. You have to put your faith and trust in God. It is only by that. Heads bowed. Eyes closed.